Shalom. I'm Kohenet Yael Tischler, student rabbi, and welcome to this month's episode of Progressively Jewish. Each episode of this series coincides with Rosh Chodesh, the start of a new Jewish month, and is an opportunity to connect to Judaism through a progressive lens. The month of Adar Sheni, second Adar, begins on the evening of Thursday, the 3rd of March. The Hebrew month of Adar hosts Purim, our festival of laughter, revelry, satire, and generalized noisemaking. It also features two incredible heroines, Vashti and Esther, who stand up to the powerful men in their worlds. So is Purim just about having a good laugh, or is there more to it? Can humor help us to say things that we otherwise wouldn't be able to? What role can humor play in dismantling hierarchies and paving the way for a more just world? Joining me today to explore these questions are comedian Rachel Krieger and musician and Jewish educator Shoshana Jedwab. Um, so hello Shoshana and Rachel, it's really amazing to have you. Um, I thought we'd just start with some introductions. Um, so I'm Yael for everyone listening. Um, and I'm in my second year at Leo Beck College, and I'm also a Kohenet, which is a Jewish ritualist standing on the shoulders of Jewish women and femme folk from ancient Israel to the present day. Um, and we have with us, Rachel, why don't you introduce yourself first? Hello, thank you very much for inviting me. Um, I'm a stand-up comedian. I'm, if just in case my mum will listen, I'll, I'll reiterate that I'm an award-winning stand-up comedian because I've got to justify this very unusual job for a religious girl somehow. And uh, the only practicing Orthodox Jewish woman on the entire UK comedy circuit, which is an interesting thing to be. Um, I'm also a writer, a director, a speaker, and in my previous life I did another 700 other jobs uh, including social work so quite a diverse little background um, and I very much identify as an Essex girl because that's where I grew up. Amazing thank you so much Rachel and it sounds like your mother has a lot to be proud of you for um, so well done you know I'm sure you can be proud of you too. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and um, Shoshana why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are. Okay um, I'm obviously the one with the American accent um, I'm a prize-winning American Jewish educator with a long career. Uh, I'm now, I think, in the older uh, Americans uh, group uh, with a career teaching Judaic studies, mainly to middle school, which means 11-year-olds to 14-year-olds um, in a pluralistic day school. But I'm also a percussionist and a hand drummer. I was the founding drum circle leader for the JCC in Manhattan. Uh, I'm a singer-songwriter of sacred songs, of a feminist embodied uh, tradition, and I am um, in the leadership uh, team of uh, Kohenet. I was the f founding teacher, educator at the Kohenet Hebrew Priestess Institute, um, where I took it upon myself early on to teach the archetype of the fool. Um, and I'm also the daughter of a very funny Auschwitz survivor. Thank you so much for sharing. I feel like there's a lot of hilarious, like hilarity in this space, but also a lot of like serious, like mamash, like there's something to that silliness. Um, so thank you both for, for bringing um, all that you bring. Um, so I'd just like to start with asking sort of how, how you use humor, humor in your work, sort of how does that show up? So let's start with you, Rachel. 
Well, I mean, if I didn't use humour in my work as a stand-up, then I would lose any work pretty quickly, I think. Um, but I always have used humour. My family is really funny. Um, well, particularly my dad's side of the family. Um, all my grandparents are immigrants and refugees to this country, to the UK, and went through their various experiences, either they or their families, their extended families, um, losses and hardship. And Jews cope with that in really two ways. It's either up or down, isn't it? So either we cope with it by laughing or we cope with it by depression and often a combination of the two. And uh, that's very, very common in all comedians, actually, to have the tendency towards that roller coaster kind of emotional pathway. And uh, yeah, so I think my dad's side of the family were always very into comedy. And I've talked about this a lot in the past about how um, they used to be quite competitive about joking, particularly like the old Jewish jokes, you know, like the old standards. So if we went to my grandparents for Shabbat or Yom Tov, then after the meal, the men would obviously congregate in the living room and the women would go into the kitchen because those were the days I'm older than I look. And uh, the women would all be kind of chatting and doing the washing up and getting probably whatever was the next food or drink ready because God forbid there should be too much of a gap. And my dad and uh, his his brothers and brothers-in-law and um, my grandfather, all the men in the family would sit there, sort of loosen their belts from the big meal and sit down and relax and competitively joke with each other. And I remember as a child, I used to sit on the stairs and I used to want to be in that room where the funny stuff happened, but always with quite dark humour. I mean, my mum's uh, fat parents were survivors. They came here from Germany and, um, you know, always found a way of finding what to laugh at really so that's my lens of really how I view everything um everything that happens I kind of interpret through what what's the funny um however bad things are and they've been very very bad at times we've all been through our bits and pieces of Taurus um there's always an aspect to it which is what kind of triggers often an almost very inappropriate joke but something that kind of kicks starts kick starts a conversation I'd say through humor thank you so much for i've no for, idea if that answered your actual oh, question yeah, about how i use it, it in my work <laughs> it absolutely did and i feel like like we're already starting to draw out the pouring themes of that sort of that darkness that is inherent in so much humor and how it's such a, a coping and survival mechanism and i would have mm -hmm. wanted to be in that room too uh with yeah, that <laughs> and it's sure. also that um to be i'm an observational comic so it's about looking at what's happening to me and thinking what's funny about that and what do I want to share and we're a, I mean we are a nation of storytellers like that's who we are as Jews passing on the tale from one generation to the next is everything we've been bred to do so it's natural for me to think oh this thing came up and you know what I want to tell as many people as possible my version or a version I think they'll enjoy of that story and it's a real privilege for me that I get to do that in quite a unique way particularly to non-Jewish audiences where I'm still there with my tichelon you know I'm not swearing I'm dressed how I dress like because that's who I am the whole time but I'm sharing with them something about my grandparents something about my kids something about what happened um, at school. I've even tried a few times to tell mikvah related material, but that does tend to need like quite a lot of explanation. So not always quite as successful with the mainstream audience. 
Yeah, I, I feel like I would be really into mikvah humor. You can you can try me as your audience when you need that. <laughs> um, Shoshana, how about you? How does humor show up in your work? Um, well, as a Jewish text teacher, um, and you know, for kids as well as adults, uh, it'll take different forms as it needs to be age appropriate. As it and um, so at at the Kohanan Institute. Um, where I'm a teacher and a musician, I often crack jokes in ritual space uh, with with great kavana because um, I find that my work, my spiritual work with comedy, is to rebalance things when they get too serious. It is really spiritually dangerous to be too serious, and I see this in the texts I teach both adults and and kids. But I just want to say that once. One night I came to a Kohanan evening program dressed up in a battery powered blow up unicorn costume to embody the Tahash, that biblical animal from the book of Vayikra, Leviticus, whose skin, uh, the Torah says, served as the slip covers on the tabernacle's holiest furniture. Um, in, um, and, I, and I also um, have a, um, the help of a, of a puppet uh, at, at the Kohenet uh, Priestess Institute. Um, her name is Spring Levy. She was formerly um, an ultra-Orthodox Jew from Borough Park in Brooklyn, New York, U USA. Um, and so she was Sprint of Pesha. Now she's in her, you know, she's on her journey. She's Spring Levy. And uh, currently she's a uh, sex educator at uh, the only Borough Park GLBTQ friendly charter school called the Harvey Milchik School. Um, <laughs> at, at, at the Heschel School, where, where I'm also the Jewish um, life coordinator, I basically event produce Purim as well as other holidays. So that means every year when there isn't a global pandemic, that is, um, I make sure that cross-dressing happens, that um, cosplay happens, that people eat too much, that um, that the kids make mishloach manot and pay off the security guards, and you know, for their security, um, and just model, um, you know, the queer truth of life, um, and model how we handle great fear. We handle horror and fear like the story of Purim and a lot of Jewish history with humor. It's one of our greatest um, medicines. So I feel like I'm carrying the medicine of comedy within traditional Jewish education or not so traditional Jewish education um, to, to help the people have this medicine. Thank you. And, and I have been a recipient of that medicine firsthand. I was hoping you would bring up the unicorn um, because that was one of the highlights of my uh, priestess education. Um, so thank you. And, and I think you've both touched on this thing that there's there's something healing, there's something deeper going on um, when we crack a joke. It's not it's not just surface level. Um, and so I'm curious where I'm curious to go next is really sort of, is there something about humor that allows us to tell truths that we wouldn't otherwise be able to? Um, is that something that comes out um, in your comedy, Rachel, or in the way that you've um, encountered the world? I mean, absolutely. 
And I was just thinking, um, I was just thinking about um, traditional and non-traditional teaching, actually, which, and, and how it encompasses humour. And I don't think that, I, we often use those expressions and I don't think they're very truthful because I don't think Jewish education has ever really been traditional um, until we've imposed those frameworks on it. Because if you think about, for example, um, the Seder, um on Pesach like so much of that is just stuff to prompt conversation and discussion and you wouldn't have it at any other meal and there's nothing it's become a tradition but there's nothing traditional about it and also because families adapt it you know every family or most families kind of have their extra bits they put on and the same with Purim the same with kind of all the holidays the way we pass things on is not just like the way our parents did it we incorporate then our world into everything um and that's the the tradition is kind of changing it up in a way maybe but uh now i've forgotten the question this is terrible uh, you shouldn't have neurodivergent <laughs> people on podcasts because no, my brain great. goes in a different direction and that's it but uh, on the other hand i do get an extra 15 minutes if i have to do any writing <laughs> so that's good no, it's what wonderful because I feel like sometimes the like the most amazing things are the things that come out unprompted. It's like a little bit of improv here, a little bit of improv there. Um, yeah. about oh, I think it was about like, truth to power, wasn't it? Truth telling. Sort of. Are there ways that that comedy allows you to tell the truth that you wouldn't otherwise be able to? So yeah, I think that's. Uh, I think something happened recently that really highlighted that for me actually, which was um, I went to perform somewhere and the compare introduced me as. And I'm going to ask you. I'm going to give you a trigger warning for this as two like strong women. The compare introduced me as a lovely little lady, like as in our next. I wish everyone could see your faces. Our next act is a lovely little lady. And I thought that was actually hilarious. It's it's gone on my list of the many ways that men have introduced me that I found interesting. And uh, I thought that was, I, I was thinking about it a lot afterwards on my journey back about what it was about it that really tickled me. And it's because my comedy is not lovely. Um, my comedy is hard hitting and truth to power in a lovely package where I'm smiley and nice and sweet, but it enables me to say whatever I want to say uh, in an accessible fashion that people are going to listen to. So when I talk about, for example, um, the the weight of the Holocaust on me and my shoulders in terms of my family history and in terms of the way I was educated, because there was a big focus on Holocaust education when I was growing up, um, that's um, something that is, you know, it's a presence, a shadow in my life. That's not an easy conversation for people. It's also not something that the wider world necessarily focuses on that much. You know, I'd really say that those who were impacted by it most directly probably think about it the most. So when I'm at some comedy club in the middle of nowhere, they don't know any Jews and I come on and I'm talking about how I found myself obsessed with the show Doomsday Preppers on Netflix and Amazon Prime and I'm sure many other providers and how I realized that I related it to like my constant anxiety about the Nazis coming and you know what would I do and there are jokes my jokes don't punch down victims of the Holocaust in any way I wouldn't even dream of that but I think I can speak about my you know lived experience and I think it's quite astonishing to people because they never thought like that I have um when I introduce myself and I explain um about 
what my headscarf is and I explain about um I think uh, I, I often comment that I'm uh, I'm Jewish I'm one of the blonde ones who's allowed to pass amongst you unnoticed thank you very much I mean I was born here but you're still letting me and things like that it's just challenging the fact that there are those prejudices still there's a lot of anti-semitism in Britain at the moment it's risen dramatically the last few years and it enables me to kind of make quite shocking jokes. I've got a lot of material on, uh, around that subject and it's virtually always, until I toured Israel, the majority of people who'd heard me perform weren't Jewish because of the way I gig on the circuit because I do the Edinburgh Festival and other festivals around the country. So um, I had in my, first, in my first show, I had a whole segment about uh, people's stereotypes of Jews and it included about having horns being pushy and competitive being um, obsessed with money and uh, I tried to think what the third thing was and about being rich and I used to get the audience to read out from a card the questions that I've been asked most about being Jewish and can you just imagine those poor souls now when I think about it? But also my chutzpah, really. But they would open their envelope and, uh, you know, give them the microphone and they have to say, is it true that all Jews are rich? Or is it true that all Jews are competitive? Is it true that you cover your hair to hide the marks where you had your horns removed? And, uh, you know, because it was framed in humour, I could say what I want. But, you know, that's what we've been doing forever you know in the shtetls in the ghettos in the camps in the wherever it was a way of making fun and dealing with making fun making laughter and dealing with the oppression that existed around us and we still do it now all the Jewish comedians here have stories pretty much of when an anti-semitic incident occurred either outside or inside the comedy world and how they brought that onto the stage I was once in a gig in Camden I'll, I'll stop talking a second but I was doing a gig in Camden and I made a joke about, I said something about being Jewish and I made a joke about how um, we used to ask everyone in the audience to give us a cheer if you're Jewish, but like since the, since the whole Jeremy Corbyn thing, like that's not so popular. And uh, so I won't ask anyone to shout out their ethnicity. And this guy shouted out, I'm a Nazi, honestly from the audience. And um, I was thrown for a second if I wanted, but I just said to him, well, I suspect that uh, you're not my target audience, and I'm really hoping that I'm not yours either. And then we all moved on and everyone had a little laugh. But uh, yeah, it's a way of being able to kind of shout our words in such a kind of like an iron fist and a velvet glove in a way that means that people are open to hearing it um, where they might not if I was coming around to give them a TED talk. Yeah, yeah. And I like, I feel like that story you told about the guy who self identified as a Nazi is just, you yeah. uh, number one, great thinking, but number two, I mean, that's, that's the power of humor of being able to kind of hold that space for that person who was bringing something that was so awful. Um, and you were able to, to kind of fight back. Um, I mean, realistically, I doubt he was a Nazi. I mean, for so many reasons, not least because he was quite kind of unkempt and he had a lot of tattoos and sort of messily dressed and they were very smart and well put together. So he wouldn't have lasted long. Reassuring, perhaps? Who <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and what about you, Shoshana? How do you feel um, that humour allows you to tell truths you wouldn't otherwise be able to? Well, I, I wouldn't be 
a Talmud teacher, I wouldn't be a Bible teacher if, if I didn't trust those books. I trust the Talmud more than the Bible. Uh, it's much funnier. Um, so I see circumstances and texts where the rabbis uh, make fun of themselves, call them on things, speak truth to their own power. Mm -hmm. I wish, I wish um, the political discourse today took note of how to do that, you know, how to have strong opinions, but also like rip yourself down. Um, so, I mean, I can give an example from my sixth grade uh, Mishnah class um, in the fall. Um, tractate Barachot, uh chapter four opens with like its, its agenda, which is to present the rules of the Amida, the rules of the now central core uh, Jewish worship practice. Now that there is no temple, um, you know, this is it. This is where we're going in, with the rabbinic project. So it opens in Mishnah 1 with not no God, not, nothing like that, no spirituality, just prayer times, arguments about prayer times. You know, is it, is it 10 o'clock? Is it 12 o'clock? Etc. Um, but then the second Mishnah uh, is an anecdote about um, an earnest spiritual guy. Uh, Rabbi Nechonia ben Hakana uh, would come into the Beit Midrash, come into the study house, saying a short prayer. So in his, the Mishnah says, in his entering and in his exiting, he would utter a short prayer. And the peanut gallery uh, of Tanakama, the peanut gallery says, what is the place of this prayer? As if it's an, a spiritual idiot speaking, like as if it can't recognize creativity um, when individuals create norms for themselves. Like the question itself, I found hysterical. What is the place of this prayer? Of course, it's a straw man. It can be looked at as a straw man. In, in, you know, in great contrast to the first Mishnah, which is, there's the Amida. This is the rabbinic practice. A person says it twice a day, maybe three times a day. It's blah, 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 blah. What is the place of this prayer? So one meaning of that is, what is the purpose of this prayer? And he responds in the Mishnah, well, when I come in, I pray that I don't mess anybody up. And when I leave, I give thanks for my portion. But there are like eight, eight eight entendres to this line, what is the place of this prayer? Because one meaning is, if you take it literally, it's hysterical. The Mishnah just told you where he was when he was saying the prayer. And they asked, what is the place of this prayer? It was when he was entering upon his entrance, you know, in the entrance and the exit. Um, but speaking truths of power, this is an example right in a Mishnah, whether most people see it, um, most educators are not educating towards this. Um, as, as well as um, the other truths in the Mishnah of, of Jewish practice and spirituality. This is a major medicine within Jewish spirituality to, to show that if you only are the in the spirit of the first Mishnah, if you're only checking your boxes and making sure you're, you're, you're having good behavior with prayer, you will miss out on how prayer can be self-help, how prayer is also about just general gratitude and prayer come on it's about being in the presence of the awesomeness of god period and we're and 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 any moment is being in that entryway if you just are aware of that so humor in the talmud teaches me deep truths 
that the Talmud wants to also teach me um, that are past sort of the orthodoxies and the banalities. I see them there. This is just one example. And it's, it's sort of, it transcends that, that kind of, I think a lot of people can sort of look at rabbinic literature and say, oh, it's very, it's very serious. You must do it this way. Um, but it's always laughing at itself. I can't believe how many times I've looked at something and been like, oh, that's probably supposed to be a joke. That's probably supposed to be a satire. But there's always something beneath that. Um, yeah. I, yeah, I believe I'm missing the joke in the Seifa. The Seifa means the end of the Mishnah, where he says, um, and when I leave, I give thanks for my portion. I have a suspicion that that is a sexual innuendo that is going over our heads today. Um, but let's just leave it at that. I'm always happy to, to like go with rabbinic sexual innuendo. It's all over the place. We're obsessed. <laughs> it's also that our texts are written by and about people like the, whether you're looking at the Torah, the Talmud, whatever, it's human beings. And that's our interaction is that we do mess about. And when we argue, we get cross and we say stupid things. And then those stupid things are thrown back in our faces. I mean, that is, that's the Talmud, isn't it? That's uh, loads of people. It's just people sort of disagreeing with each other, sometimes in a funny way, sometimes in a self-righteous way, you know, being knocked off their perch, being put back on a perch. So, you know, we have to remember even... Um, if uh, you know I'm obviously of the orthodox persuasion but the the Torah is full of people making mistakes and like realizing afterwards that that was a stupid thing to do and because they're just human beings and human beings are fallible and that's what that's what's funny it's uh, we all slip on a banana skin yeah oh, all- do, they, do, they, do they actually realize the things they do are mistakes or they just pass it on to their miserable children I mean, that's also very <laughs> Jewish. <laughs> I thought that, I don't know, the Torah is so many things. <laughs> I, I feel like you you guys are all, well, you're, you're kind of um, bringing us really naturally to, to where I'd like to go next, um, which is to, to make this much more explicitly about, about Purim and what's going on there. Um, and um, what I what I love um, is this teaching from Rabbi Arthur Wasco, which when he when he sort of summarizes the Purim story in one sentence, it's the joke is on the tyrant. Um, and I, I would love to sort of hear from both of you sort of why it's important to play jokes on tyrants um, or by by extension, any of us. Um, but I think I want to specifically hone in on sort of why play jokes on those in power, specifically those who are misusing it. Um, let's go to Rachel first. Um, I was just thinking about Simon Brodkin, is a British stand-up comedian um, who is really well known, is a Jewish comedian as well, um, very well known for playing pranks on all kinds of people, political people, um, sports people, whatever. Um, he does that a bit less now, but uh, he, you know what, it's um, it's pricking that pomposity, isn't it, really? And it's taking the sting away from what someone else can do. Um, I'm trying to remember where the quote is from that I'm going to absolutely butcher now, but one of the uh, Holocaust writers talked about, like, that you can have all everything taken away from you except for what's in your head. Um, I, it's probably Primo Levi in some really beautiful language that I can't think of now, but, uh, 
you know, that um, people can do what they want, like tyrants. You look at um, our situations now around the world that we've had to deal with the pandemic and with various political unrest. I mean, at the moment, there are very few countries coming off well in any capacity in terms of their leadership. And yet, it, when think, there's a kind of um, a tightrope, I guess, between the importance of satire and holding up a mirror to things and making a uh, finding kind of connection with people who also see the reflection in the mirror or the red pill blue pill however you want to describe it um with it uh, there's kind of that and then there's also having respect for positions of authority or hard work that people do um that's always kind of like the fine line i wouldn't want to be a prime minister or president of anywhere right now like i think that's got to be or a king or queen but i'm not such a monarchist i'm going to probably get into like massive trouble for saying that but it's not a secret um you know don't wish them ill except for the ones who really currently currently very publicly deserve it but uh you know she's all right the queen but yeah i wouldn't want to be an elected official to deal with everything but then when you see that the power goes to people's heads and that um you look at someone like boris johnson that if he was a character in a sitcom or or a, or a satirical you know comedy sketch we'd all think that everything he said or does is hilarious and it's when it comes down to the fact he has got so much power over our lives that's where it becomes slightly more challenging so it's important to have opportunities to kind of hold that mirror up or shine that light and um, make you know share an awareness and make sure that we keep account and that our leadership whoever they might be, the Jewish leadership, the, the secular leadership, whatever it might be, um, are held accountable for their actions. And in some places, the only safe way of doing that is by using comedy, because if they're laughing, I think it was Mel Brooks who said, if they're laughing, they can't punch you. So, uh, you know, if you're doing it with comedy, it can be seen as gentle jest, and it's also an outlet for your frustrations and your anxieties and fears and hopes and all of those things but without the kind of slight fear that you'll end up in prison or dead. Amen. <laughs> Hope. Um, what's your perspective, um, Shoshana, making jokes on tyrants? I just, I just want to uh, slow us down to like, what is the practice on Purim with the, with the scroll of Esther, with this story? The practice has been to, to craft spiels Mm -hmm. And this is the formula for a spiel. You take what is current events and you impose it on the biblical story. You like rip out the guts of the biblical story. This, and, you know, Ahasuerus, the, the, the uh, pretender king of the Persian Empire, is a stand-in for the people who, as Rachel said, who keep you helpless um, in your current situation. So the practice of using comedy um, to interpret the story is a, is a medicine, is a healing practice to um, how do we deal with our helplessness? Um, and we kind of, we're very aggressive. Spiels are incredibly aggressive with the biblical text. Like it's like a, we give scant um mention of the plot and we're we're off to the races with with our own problems 
um, and that we will get to, to have um, the healing of medicine. Um, Alan Klein wrote a book called The Healing Power of Humor, um, and he writes a lot of wonderful things, but he says, you know, the pain doesn't stop from trauma, right? But humor can reduce the suffering and imbue the person with power and control in a scenario of utter helplessness. The person deals with the stressors by emphasizing the amuse, amusing or ironic aspects of the conflict and the cause of the stress. Um, so we've been using this and I'm one of the few people on earth who actually own, I could be wrong, maybe Rachel owns this book, probably, maybe this is a conference for the people who own this book. Um, I, <laughs> I, I bought this heart shattering book called It Kept Us Alive, Humor in the Holocaust by Chaya Ostrauer. I was compelled to buy this and, and I was able miraculously to only read half of it. I probably will never read the, set, the other half because it's just like, it kind of hurts too much. But um, I was, this book is about how during the Holocaust, um, you know, Greek Jewish women, uh, Ladino speakers used their practice um, probably going all the way, I mean, definitely going all the way back to Spain of the satirical rap and rhyme and, and hip hop. And they would hip hop in their bunks, um, creative hatred of Hitler and his minions. And by the way, I can't say the word minions without thinking of onions. And I love onions. <laughs> um, you know, she uh, quotes uh, survivors who say, if we weren't funny, if I wasn't funny in, in the concentration camp, I would have committed suicide. So Purim is, um, does a lot of things, uh, but you know, the Purim story, I'm sorry, I don't find the scroll of Esther that funny. It's what we are doing with it. Um, the practices of Purim with that story, um, with that Megillah, you know, reading it twice. And by the way, the story's not true. The Persian empire is pretty good to us. And I love that. It's like this giant fantasy of Jewish uh, helplessness and revenge uh, wrought in a place where actually that wasn't the case, but it was surely the case. It, but but the anxiety is there, right? And whether the anti-Semitism manifests itself, the fact that it it manifests in many places, and the and and we are stuck with the disease of the anxiety of of being uh, a target for other people. Um, so. That's what I, that was my little soapbox there. Well, how do you like that? It's a great soapbox. <laughs> yeah, there's an interesting soapbox. I haven't read the book. I read her notes because it's based off of her dissertation, I think, isn't it? Or her yes, PhD. And um, because I speak a lot about Holocaust humor and I quote her when I do that talk. Um, because it's absolutely fascinating and I've never um, I have a, proce a processing disorder a bit like um, uh, dyslexia dyscalculia but I've never would have thought I'm someone who could sit and read through someone's academic work online and I somehow found it years ago when I was searching and and I read it um, and it's it's really interesting and I, I yeah quote a lot of it because it's just that it's just very very powerful and one of the things I do in my talk actually um, that's interesting is I tell some of the jokes that uh, she references and that other people have referenced that people made in the camps and, and before the war um, and in ghettos and post-war and I deliver them 
as a stand-up, that's my job. The person who wrote it, who wrote, who created those jokes, they would have told them with humor in their voice to the person next to them who might have wanted to punch them for being chirpy and funny at a difficult time. Who knows? Um, I think they'd have thrown me off the train, like just for making those jokes all the time. I wouldn't have even got there. But um, yeah, but I deliver them. I deliver them as intended. And then I asked the room how they feel about the delivery of those jokes and the and the material of those jokes. And I always think it's very interesting because often people say that it's actually disgusting, it's it's awful, you should kind of let it go. You should we shouldn't make those jokes, we shouldn't um we shouldn't quote those jokes. And I can't disagree more with that. And I I'm very clear about it because I don't want to do any more silencing of those voices. I think those voices need to be remembered. And if one of the ways we can remember them, and if it makes us uncomfortable, that's okay, because it is uncomfortable. And there's nothing wrong with being uncomfortable. You know, Purim is an uncomfortable story for all kinds of reasons. Um, you know, the argument about, you know, historical fact, the argument about God's presence, God's, you know, hidden presence. Um, there's the aspect of exactly how Vashti and Esther are described in the text, as opposed to how they're treated by the various, like 900 different versions that we might be taught, depending on what kind of schools we've gone to, what kind of cheder we've gone to. Did Vashti have a tail? Did she have spots? Um, was Esther beautiful? Was she ugly? You know, like it's the most Disneying of Disneying, Disneyfying of a story, I think, in all of our canon, um, because we have to hate Vashti, otherwise we'll be too upset like that she's got rid of. So she has to have lots of bad things said about her that aren't even in the scroll anywhere. And that Esther has to not be beautiful because we don't have the same empathy for a beautiful heroine that we have for someone who's like um, plain but plucky and brave and all of that. And uh, once you start looking at the kind of the spin from seven different directions, it, it's, it makes an interesting read. Can I add one thing? Yes, I think we have time for a concluding thought from each of you. So well, I'm just going to uh, I'm just going to quote Victor Frankl, um, which I think is very relevant for Purim. Um, and he, he's a, a major speaker on the Holocaust and the bless his soul. The illusions some of us still held were destroyed one by one. And then quite unexpectedly, most of us were overcome by a grim sense of humor. We knew that we had nothing to lose except our ridiculously naked lives. I think that is, that is a note to end on. Um, and, and it's so incredible to me, the way that we can start with a conversation that's about comedy and then fall into this deep sadness and then have this inkling that maybe we'll come out in joy and comedy again. Um, so thank you both for being on this journey with me. Um, this brings us to the end of our podcast. So thank you so much to our guests, Rachel Krieger and Shoshana Jedwab, and also to Liberal Judaism, Reform Judaism, and Leo Beck College for supporting Progressively Jewish. Don't forget to subscribe to the Progressively Jewish podcast and to leave us a positive comment or review with your podcast provider. We hope that you will recommend us to your friends and fellow congregants, those who are Jewish and people of all faiths and none. To share your ideas on the future of this podcast, either comment on the Progressively Jewish Facebook page or email us at progressivelyjewish at gmail.com. Please also join us for our next episode for the month of Nisan, 
where we will be discussing burning and cleansing.